Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This is part one of a two-part series in which we take you behind the most famous door in the world, number 10 Downing Street. In the next episode, I speak to researcher in residence Jack Brown about the decision taken 60 years ago this month to stop Downing Street from falling down altogether. But first, we speak to three people who've worked in Number 10 under three different Prime Ministers about life in the corridors of power, how the office shapes its inhabitants and what it's like on the day their boss is forced to move out. Plus, we'll try to answer some of the questions that you've sent in. I'm delighted to be joined by Caroline Slowcock, who's just written a book, People Like Us, Margaret Thatcher and Me, about her time as a private secretary for the Iron Lady. Gabby Burton was David Cameron's press secretary and later director of external relations throughout his time in Number 10. And Philip Collins is the Times columnist who was Tony Blair's speechwriter in his final years in power. Welcome to you all. So let's uh, begin then with just what it's like when you're just working in number 10 and you'll you walk up down the street for the first time let's start with you Callum what was that like for you well I mean the first time I uh, actually went into work I walked down down street because there were no gates uh, in those days uh, they were put in later so what year was this oh this was 1989 okay and uh the door of number 10, as uh, others will know, it opens magically just as you approach it because they can see you, literally see you coming. And uh, the image that came into my mind was uh, Narnia. When you go through the wardrobe and then you walk into this extraordinarily different world. And that's what number 10 is like because you, you, know, you think it's going to be a kind of small uh, domestic building, but actually you know, it just sort of extends and extends like a TARDIS with lots of different offices and, and places. But my first time in number 10 was actually being interviewed by Margaret Thatcher, which, of course, was, in anticipation anyway, an utterly terrifying experience, but rather more friendly when it came down to it. She brought a bowl of hyacinths down from the flat, which, of course, was directly above you know, her flat. She lived above number 10 in those days, and said, I've brought these down for you, Caroline. And she placed them you know, 
our table between the two of us as she uh, interviewed me. Or just to look at? Just to look at, I think, the yeah. fragrance. But it was just such a, a strangely unexpected for me feminine gesture because I thought of her as rather kind of manly headmistressy. You know, and actually she was remarkably feminine on that first day. What about for your, your point of view, Gabby? So you were working with David Cameron in opposition. So it was the first time you'd been in exactly. After so it was that, after the five days of the will we, won't we of all the coalition talks, and we were actually we didn't go up into the front door through the front door. We were sort of um, ushered in via the uh, link door, which is sort of back entrance that you can get through um, via the cabinet office. Yes, yeah, so it was. So we are sort of emerged into the bowels of Number Ten via that route, and it was um, well, we were exhausted. So I can remember everyone kind of surrounding David. Well, of course, he went in by the front door, but once we sort of met up again in the foyer, as it were, he was then whisked off and we were left to kind of explore. What about you, Phil? We'll come on to the exploring in a second. What was it like when you first went in? Well, the very first time I ever went into Downing Street was to see Margaret Thatcher, funnily enough. I was working for Frank Field at the time Caroline describes, and Frank used to have these secret meetings with uh, Margaret Thatcher, and um, he used to take me along. So I sat there and sort of listened to them talking about politics, and she'd ask me about my mum, who's a great Thatcher supporter. So that was my first time I ever went in. Did she give you a bowl of hyacinth? She didn't. I didn't get any flowers of any description, (laughs) um, and neither did Frank. Frank Field came on the night of her resignation you know when she was thinking about resigning and came you know very late at night and um you know sat down and said i'm going to wait until i see her and then when somebody one of us popped in you know they looked like they were praying though i think frank field tells me they weren't actually but they were can i just ask a question about um margaret thatcher and where she operated out of did she operate out of sort of what we now call the library up on the first floor? Uh, yes, I mean, uh, you know, the whole building is largely reconfigured. There were a few rooms, like the cabinet room, you know, obviously haven't changed. But yes, yeah. it was called the study, and it was the room directly below the flat. Mm, um, right. So you come, you come down the flat stairs, and it's on your left. Because a bit of urban myth comes in where people say, oh, this is where Churchill was, or this is where Thatcher worked. And I sort of, it's quite good to actually, you know, <laughs> so double no, check these things. So she was on the first floor. Yes, and she was, uh, you know, that was her her favourite place. You know, she she used to write speeches there and, uh, uh, you know, she had these little armchairs and then she had a desk, which I don't think she ever really much used. Um, and then occasionally she would go down to the cabinet room for obviously, you know, the cabinet meetings, but she would sometimes have more informal meetings there. But generally speaking, you know, she had her bilaterals with ministers up in the study and, uh, you know, it was a very feminine sort of boudoir type of place, really. And just behind her, there was a little cabinet. And one of the first things I was told is whenever uh, she gets a cough, which she did quite frequently... There's lots of prime ministers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) there's some water, you know, in that little cover behind. But there was also quite a lot of risky, which (laughs) came out quite liberally at times too. But I haven't answered your question, Matt. The first time I went in for Blair, I just walked up the... Street. I had to go through the security, which by then had been put in place on the end of Downing Street because they didn't know I was coming. It's a typical day at a first <laughs> job. You know, you, you turn up expecting to just go through the HR process and they don't know you're there. You haven't got an email. You haven't got a desk. So did you start sort of how many years had he oh, been? Oh, he'd been, he'd been Prime Minister for, for four years or something right. when I started. So things were already established and, and the, the country appeared to be going on perfectly well without my contribution. Um, but I turned up to offer my contribution. No one had ever heard of me. So I spent most of the first day trying to get in but I did eventually walk up the street and knock on the famous door and, and you're going and I did that every single day you go there because that's one of the odd things that when you go into work every morning there is a, a back entrance and there's also the the link door that uh, Gabby just mentioned but mostly you, you walk up the street and bang on the door and the policeman opens it and you walk in through the main door 
And it's a great and thrill you as well. You bang on the door then, because for oh, me, yeah. they Times. just they just open it because no, they can, can see you on the monitor. If they've seen you coming, they so do. A, yeah, there's a sort of CCTV camera. Which there is. It's not magic, but it feels like magic. The doormen are, you know, otherwise engaged. You can be sort of left out there, sort of having a. We used to try and trick them. I used to try and if you if you come really tight, they out of the line of the camera because I used to like banging on the door. It made me feel very important. We sometimes see Boris Johnson if he's coming from the Foreign Office. He's not coming up the street, and so he sort of suddenly appears at the door, and quite often he ends up having That's to... That's right, because there's, there's a route through the, the foreign office. And, you can... and so where was Tony Blair's office? Tony Blair's office was downstairs, just off the cabinet room, so it, was, it became known as the den. It was the room where all the, you know, all the private secretaries would sit, and, and Tony took up that office there. So he was right in the heart of things on the, on the ground floor. So you, there's a door opens, there's a long corridor straight ahead of you, off the main foyer, which leads to the cabinet office, and right next to that was Tony's office, which overlooked the rose garden at the back and this which, is we, which we took on you as well. the same yes. the same uh, office we did we, we sort of toured with the idea of trying to go up to where you, you described um, Margaret Thatcher worked but it, it it just became too complicated it was going to cost a lot of money so we and we also abandoned. presumably having managed to get in and put together a coalition <laughs> lugging sofas upstairs was, was the last was thing was on our mind but things. I did hear a rumour which maybe Phil you can confirm or deny that Tony Blair sort of felt that Downing Street wasn't really a workable I mean it's not a functional office let's face it it's not built to be an office so you have these rabbit warrens of desks and all the rest of it and that he considered moving the sort of working side of number 10 obviously keeping it as a state office and for you know dignitary and all the rest of it and, and receptions but taking his team to the QE2 and having a sort of open plan office. It, they did think about it, but pretty soon the, the whole symbolism of that was yeah, so yeah. awful that it wasn't seriously considered. But uh, but it's not a great office, really, is it? I mean, it's not, not ideal, um, although I came to be really fond of it. Um, there's a very important point, Matt, about that, the location of the Prime Minister's office because then authority within Downing Street really does rest on how close you are to that there's a real pecking order that everybody feels if you if your office is quite close to the prime minister then you feel more important it's not necessarily true but there's something in it so everybody was always vying for the the small offices that are dotted around the cabinet office i don't know if you were in one gabby but um i i I finally got there it took me a while though let me tell you yeah so there's a real fight for the space in close proximity to the prime minister to me like you were taking the offices that in my day were you know the offices of the private secretary so we had two offices which were adjacent to the cabinet room overlooking the Rose Garden and the principal private secretaries had the one which was right next to the cabinet room and then I and my the other three private secretaries were in this outer office and of course in those days you know really civil servants had you know the whip hand you know we we, we controlled everything it's changed so much that is the difference as a private secretary you were a civil servant and you would serve in theory any prime minister that was there was political appointees like Phil and Gabby come and go with with the the Prime Minister of the day. Mm. And, and, you know, the Chief of Staff now, um, you know, I gather sort of sit in those offices which we, we controlled. We controlled all the papers that went in. The political people didn't see many of the papers, the policy papers that went in in my day. So it really was, you know, extraordinarily different. And the other thing which is, is worth knowing is that Number 10 was much smaller, about 100 people when I was there, including the cleaners and so forth. And the sort of working group around the Prime Minister was probably no more than 20 people. Mm. So, you know, she felt 
felt, rightly in some ways, that you know she 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 had far less power than the ministers around her who've got these big departments of state. By comparison, how many people would have been in the maternity were there? God, that's a good question. I think we were sort of ticking up to about double that, I would say. Yeah, and there was yeah. the implementation unit, wasn't there? I think that uh, exactly. in Cameron's day and in your day, yeah, uh, right, strategy, strategy units unit, and the. Yeah. So if you count the, because what Caroline says is absolutely right. You, the prime minister does feel that they have got relatively little um, support compared to a minister who's got a huge department that you haven't got anything you've got no secretariat as Mm -hmm. such and so we were constantly essentially building one so we had a strategy unit which was located in the cabinet office it wasn't physically in Downing Street but it worked to us so it was part of Mm -hmm. Downing Street as an idea if not a building and we had a, a delivery unit so we were gradually building a sort of prime minister's department some of which David Cameron dismantled and then re- reinstalled in a slightly different I form. I think you realise quite quickly that you do need that support. I mean, it's yeah. just there's no getting away from it. <laughs> the criticism of opposition is, oh, you've got too many spin doctors and it's spads. It's terrible, you know, anyone who is thinking about becoming Prime Minister, do not make announcements about spad numbers. You say that Prime Ministers need it, but Margaret Thatcher, you know, managed perfectly well if you like, you know, for, was it 11 and a half years she was in power, uh, which was quite an amazing achievement. But what she did is she had an extraordinary mastery of the detail. You know, she thoroughly did her boxes. You know, we were piling the papers in, five boxes every night, if not more. You know, she was assiduous. She Just w- explain the process of the boxes. So these are, and this is when sometimes people ask, why is, why is this called Red Box? It's because of the, the ministerial Red Box that the, the, oh, all ministers get. Oh, <laughs> yes, thank you, Phil. <laughs> Paying oh, attention. Oh. So just just yeah, explain really what is. <laughs> it, it, it's probably changed since my day, um, though in other ministerial offices it's probably much the same. But because the chiefs of staff now have much more power in you know the, the kind of reconfigured number ten, it's probably they who make sure you know they they decide what goes in the boxes. But in my day, it was the private secretaries, and what would happen is we would get advice in from you know let's say the Home Office. So I was Home Affairs private secretary, so I was focusing on those sorts of areas you'd get something in from the Home Secretary and then you'd make sure that we got something in from the Treasury, you know, explaining how much what he was suggesting might cost and then I might consult the policy unit so that, you know, if, if I thought that they might have a perspective, then I'd bring all those papers together and I would summarise them in one note with a question and answer, which is hopefully yes or no. Then it would go into the box. She would either read all the attendant papers or she'd just take my word for it and then she would just tick yes or no and then it would come out. Now, in, in Thatcher's day, every day she did her boxes until the time when she lost her job. You know, she was sort of a caretaker prime minister. Andrew Turnbull, who was the principal private secretary in my day, so that with each sort of subsequent minister, uh, certainly, you know, we're talking the men here, uh, this whole process became much looser so that by the time we got to uh, David Cameron, I think he was sort of famously relaxed about his boxes. That's just not true. Ooh. Sorry. <laughs> I can absolutely tell you that is not true. No, no, no. He was doing his box at 5.30am every morning. I mean, he was... I mean. He, it's going to be very interesting when the 30-year rule comes up yeah. because his notes, he read through every single box note. Now, you know, look whether or not they went in the same process, that's you know possibly up for debate. But he was assiduous with his boxes. And and I think it was, it was a bit of a, in contrast to Brown. I don't know what, you yeah. know what Tony Blair got up to, but certainly David took the box very, very seriously. And then Blair did too, and Blair was very assiduous. And I think the thing that, that unites all of the three people we work for it was that they're quite efficient and quite clear and got through their work. Now, the, the thing that happens with Brown is not that he didn't work hard on the contrary he worked ludicrously hard it's just he was a very inefficient worker so he created work for himself 
so he didn't get round to lots of things. He also centralised so much that everything came through Downing Street, and government jams up if you do yeah, that. Yeah. Well, so that's been happening, I gather, with, with Theresa May, and civil servants absolutely hate that because they can't get on with their yeah, business. But what I saw, orders, you know, with, with John Major, because I, you know, was over the transition, is that he put a lot of, you know, he, he couldn't make up his mind as clearly as Margaret Thatcher. She was very decisive, just to echo what you've been saying. So she would, you know, have a very high hit rate, whereas he would be saying things like, please refer, which means I'd like to have a word about it or maybe another meeting. So that just, just sort of slows down the engine of government and, and everything starts this to get... kind of crucial point about the operation of the of the place which is that the principal the the prime minister has to be decisive doesn't matter that much it what they say but that things happen they've got to keep things ticking over because uh, otherwise everything just comes through there and so th- that was the crucial thing that they got through all the work and and that competition for getting in the box was the other form of jostling that takes place within Downing Street. You're always trying to get things into the Prime Minister's box to get them to his attention, precisely because you knew he would read it. That was the way in which you said, I'm still here. And it's absolutely right, there were gatekeepers to that, otherwise you would have, you know, just war and peace every night. (laughs) It's even now still all done with digital, physical Mm. pieces of paper with handwritten notes and in in a way that everything else is digitalised and but it's literally who can get their piece of paper in the box and presumably who's near the top of the box is better than being at the bottom of the box? Not necessarily, but um, certainly you had to... I I can remember thinking, I'm not going to put that note in tonight because I know that that will not go down well because he's got... He's already in a mood. He's he's already in a terrible mood. Um, That's going to get a a great big big scratch through that one. So you had to be quite clever about when you would put things in. But clearly I was a political appointee, so I had a little bit more kind of choice around that. It it, wasn't necessarily so for, for the civil servants. You had to kind of... Do what you were told I used to put spoof notes in sometimes, which will baffle historians <laughs> when they're released. <laughs> Remember the, the notes I put in where we suggested that Blair's was so right-wing on crime that we suggested a, a policy whereby people should start in prison then work their way out, <laughs> which I call earned autonomy. And he, and he, <laughs> he, he sent the note back. He'd read it and, he'd say, and he said, I actually think this is a rather good idea, tick. <laughs> Under the 30 removal, when that comes out, that'll be an absolute outrage. That's right. You imagine the left on Twitter when that comes out. (laughs) Well, I've had the experience of going to the National Archives and seeing papers that I put into the box. Because just to refresh my memory, because this is this book is written, my book is written very much, you know, in the here and now. It's based on my diaries, but I wanted to make sure I had all the details correct. And there was one particular document that actually another private secretary put into the box, which I took out, and it was a, a sex manual. Uh, designed for AIDS counsellors to, you know, counsel people on safe sex. And the head of the policy unit had told her that, you know, government money should not be going for such a thing. It was about 20 or 30 pages long. And I had the most vivid memory of all of the kind of double underlinings and no, you know, scratched all over it. She read it from beginning to end. And I can tell you that there were things in that manual that, you know, that um, even today, actually rereading it in the, uh, I, I was surprised by. But the interesting thing is that that copy that she'd scratched and screeched almost all over had disappeared. And another sanitised version was put in its place. The box note is how people make their bids in Downing Street. That's how you try and get your work going forward. Because you want powerful if you get a box really note powerful. back that says 
get this done. It, it is. It's your That's ticket it. to ride. It, it, abs- it you off. It you is. Got so this, off. this is a very important thing. It's not just some curiosity about the process. This is largely how it works. It gives you the authority. And a, a colleague of mine, Matthew Taylor, who was head of policy, he was obsessed by local government and he put in a note on local government every week. Tony Blair had no interest in local government whatsoever. And every week it came back saying, let's discuss. And then in the very last weeks of Blair's premiership, when we were trying to do things that would bind Brown in so that he couldn't move, Tony kept, sent back the, the note saying, yeah, Actually, I think it's time to do this. And Matthew said, what, really? He said, no, only joking. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the the way that the building works then? Just being near the Prime Minister is not necessarily as powerful as having access to the box? Or do the two things yeah. normally go hand in hand? I mean, I suppose under Cameron, it was who got into the 8.30 and the 4 o'clock meetings. That was sort of quite important. And there was terrible jostling for that. And you, it used to reach, suddenly it would become this enormous out of control thing barely there was standing room only and then there would be a sort of we've got to cull this is ridiculous you know the entire office can't be in here so then it would go down back down to sort of you know the core group and then it would go back up again it was a sort of an endless project yeah, really. the feeling of being excluded from a meeting was was what people hated that, that was absolutely the, exactly the right same in the government, government. Isn't it? it's not just yeah. true of number 10 but of course a private secretary goes into everything except the political meetings or at least in my day they did so that means you're taking a note of the meeting in my case I was also traveling with the prime minister so I was at her side and it's still very much the case that yeah and so mm. you really have you know at all times the year of the Prime Minister and that's how you start to develop that closeness of relationship which I think people who don't understand how the civil service work will find quite surprising how could I for example as a sort of left-wing feminist go in there and work for Margaret Thatcher the ultimate feminist anti-role model as it were as a lot of people see her and obviously I'd, I'd been trained to, to work for anyone and I'd have happily have worked for Neil Kinnock you know, who was the opposition leader at the time but you do get that kind of closeness and you see people at those little moments that you know, nobody else really sees people. I was fortunate as being a speechwriter in that I didn't have a departmental brief and I ranged across everything. So therefore I, I was in loads of meetings just because it was in a sense nothing to do with me. I was just listening. So I never quite suffered from that need to jostle to get into meetings because um, I could wander into anything. So I, I had a slight civil service sort of relationship and I travelled a lot with the Prime Minister and, I, and what Caroline says is absolutely right. Those moments sometimes in the car when the rare occasions when you're on your own with the Prime Minister, because they're surrounded by people all the time. And those moments were really important. When you're writing for someone, you, you need to establish a, some kind of rapport and, and relationship. Like their, and their voice. And yes. you know, it, was, it was hard to do that because they're so un- mm. completely tied up with work. But when it did happen, those were the best moments. I think that's one of the reasons why I'm in uh, Thatcher's day, in John Major's day, the private secretaries often wrote the speeches. You know, we would get a draft from uh, the department uh, concerned or uh, we might sometimes be involved with somebody on the political side from the policy unit. Uh, but mostly it was us writing the speeches because we knew them so well, we knew their tone of voice. It was an extremely um, gruelling experience writing speeches for Margaret Thatcher, I have to say, um, <laughs> partly because she was herself very tense about her speeches. You know, I think you've got to bear in mind that when she was was head of the Oxford uh, Conservative Association, women were not allowed to speak at the Oxford Union, you know, so she sort of always had this kind of, I suspect, nervousness about trying to get her her words right. And, uh, you know, I had no idea when I wrote my first speech for her just how um, awful the experience was, you know, likely to be. And I was just warned a few seconds before I went in to see her. And people said, well, you know, she'll either say it's like rice pudding or she'll say, I'll do it myself. Um, <laughs> you know, and I sort of said to her, look, we've got a couple of speech writing sessions in the diary. And she said, it takes 12 hours. 
to write a speech. And she would literally spend 12 hours. And she would, you know, she was so extraordinary. She would get a whiskey in her hand. She'd be, you know, talking about the speech. Then she'd fall asleep in mid-sentence with the whiskey in her hand. And then maybe a minute later, wake up, still with the whiskey in her hand, and finish the sentence. You know, that's <laughs> the kind of... night was this then? Well, this was sort of, you know... Sort of, no, but probably about sort of seven o'clock at night. And on that particular occasion we went up to the flat had some supper and in between courses she was washing the, washing the dishes because she was a woman who just didn't waste any any time in her life the flat's a really important thing to talk about, to about because you've got this combination of a workplace and a domestic environment too and in our my day gordon brown lived above number 10 and Blair lived above number 11 because number 11 is the larger of the two flats and he, he had his family there and so but the, the the spaces merge for some members of the entourage so I knew the code to to their house and I, know, I walk I, in and out of likewise. his house all the time and quite a lot of our speech writing sessions were in his flat and so you've got this funny combination of his home life and his work life. and the, no getting away from you in his well, house well, I his felt, car. I, I often felt that. Yeah. You'd have to shout out, I'm in here, hello. And, you know, just sort of warn everyone yeah. that, that you're not to emerge yeah, naked from the bathroom. Yeah, moments, I can tell you. <laughs> I'll spare your listeners the precise details. Well, do, you th- do you think your respective bosses liked Number 10 as a building and a place to work for david having the young children he quite liked being able he, he would say that he saw much more of the family it was much better for family life in a strange way because you could just quickly pop up say hello and then pop back down and, and so it wasn't so disruptive on that front but but you know as phil says it, it, it's sort of the lines are blurred so you you never you never off work which is you know fair enough you're prime minister perfect place for a kind of workaholic you know with no work-life balance because you could actually sort of you know you, you literally you could just sort of fall out of bed almost into into work I think in, early in the morning she used to wear a kind of light dress and then put on a suit when she went downstairs there was this blurring that you're talking about but also she furnished the whole of number 10 you know she removed the coconut matting that was apparently on the floor and put yeah, that they still carpet talk about which is how domesticated that, she was she mm, loved all of that she loved all that and she put you know gold leaf on the ceiling of the state room and redecorated mm. them completely. So it, it, it actually was her home. And last time I was in number 10, which was only a few years ago, you know, all that stuff was still in place. And she left a little um, thatcher, didn't she? Do you know about this? No. And there's a little symbol. There's a thatcher, a little boy with all his, you know, straw on his back going up the, the side of the one of the sort of poles. Oh, the and I think and they, I, were the pin- they were made in, painted with faux marble effects. And yes, that's they put right, the, right. I never noticed that. Mm. And then well, she your put, you boss know, wrote, wrote herself all over the building. He's got a, he redid the, the study. And I don't know how I know this. Don't ask me how I know this. And, he, and there's a bee, you know, bumblebee for Blair in the study because he Is wanted to really? leave his mark. So what did David leave? He left the European referendum. <laughs> yeah, he left a couple of bloody He said it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he left a challenge. <laughs> he left very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't have time to be doing the decor. So let's talk, as we're, as we're talking about leaving then, let's talk about the moment when the Prime Minister's Day comes to leave. Because it's always in a moment of drama, even in the case of... Blair, when it was sort of planned, but it still it felt like a big moment. Let's start with you, Caroline, because it's, it's one of the most gripping bits in your book. It's your sort of diary entry of the cabinet meeting, where essentially she tried to resign, but couldn't even get the statement out that she tried to read to her cabinet. You know, I, I was the only other woman in the cabinet room when this was happening, and I went in expecting just to see a bit of drama, a bit of history. I'm a civil servant, you know, so the next prime minister, you know, would be coming in shortly. I wasn't expecting to get emotional. Uh, but then, you know, the sight of all those men who the night before had told her that they would support her but they didn't think she could win they were all around the table and there was just her and she had this short statement that she dictated
dictated earlier and she could not read it out. She kept on breaking down in tears. You know, her voice, which is normally, you know, pretty sort of steady, just could not be kept under control. Somebody offered to read it out for her, but she said no. And obviously she was just determined to finish. You know, she wasn't, I've started, I'm going to finish. So she got to the end finally. And then, you know, she said, I don't think any of you will have heard that. Um, so I'll read it again. And then she went through the whole extraordinarily painful process. And I started, and I wasn't the only one in the room, I started crying. You know, I just found it so uh, affecting. And there was David Waddington, he was wiping tears with a big white handkerchief. It, it was the most painful uh, moment of my, of my working life. I, I don't think anyone wanted to be in that room at that point. It is extraordinary. And I, I suppose, like you said, you went in essentially doing your routine job to take notes. And, mm. you know, it was going to be a slightly more interesting cabinet meeting than, yeah. than normal. But but there it was. And, uh, you know, she, she collected herself and um, she went to go to see the Queen. And when she came back, the, the door of number 10 closed, you know, the sanctuary, because there was, you know, outside there was media everywhere. And she literally collapsed crying. And, you know, we had to send her personal secretary, her diary secretary, Amanda, who'd known her for years. She sort of ran down the long corridor to the foyer, just picked her up, put her arms around her and took her up to the flat. In a way, that's what number 10 is like. You're seeing scenes that nobody else sees. You're seeing what happens when the door shuts. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, if an hour or so later, she went out and she gave the performance of her life, really, in the House of Commons. Quite a woman, you know. Whatever you think about her politics, you've got to say that you know she she had real courage. What about you, Gabby? Because you had a sort of similar situation. The the the, the departure was yes dramatic, or the, the the announcement of the departure was dramatic. So in the morning after the EU referendum was announced, felt like hours standing outside Number Ten waiting for David Cameron yeah, to come out and make a knew, speech. We knew that you know what was coming. He had spoken to us the night before. We knew the result. To say, look, if this goes the wrong way, this is what I'm going to do. So I certainly tried to persuade him not to do that, but I realised that that would have been crackers um, on reflection god it was heartbreaking because you thought blimey we've just won an election you didn't feel that the sort of 52 percent of people who'd voted for brexit actually wanted to get rid of him um and this is what was happening and he was incredibly controlled i have to say he was very brave about it all but we were less so i mean we were crying a lot when the the lectern appeared there was a sort of anticipation that he was going to make a statement and then i think from a journalist's point of view stood on the other side of the street when Samantha Cameron appeared with him. That was yeah. when everyone realised that that probably meant he was going. Yeah, but I was—I I can remember being right by him just before he went out, and I sort of—I said something, and he said, "Please don't, because otherwise I'll—I'll I'll go." So just, I've got to do this. And <laughs> the way it's been watched back since, the choreography of people normally going through the door, they sort of turn and look behind, but he didn't. He just sort of put his arm around Samantha, and they all went through. Yeah. Was there emotion afterwards? Well, do you know what? It was a very private moment. It was just they—they they kind of went and had some time just to themselves so there wasn't a big sort of group behind the door no 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 there wasn't there wasn't it was very sort of because of the circumstance of what was going on it wasn't a case you could just sort of jet off and you know have a lie down you had to absolutely sort of make sure that everything was yeah. was not going to fall apart so um you you different to an election loss because he was still there and there was still a process yes, then. Of, and there was e- it was even more pertinent. You know, it would have been a huge dereliction of duty just to, to sort of knock... I mean, actually, Cameron's behaviour after the whole thing, you know, I saw his leadership really at its at its best because he just said, right, we've got to get on. The meetings will happen as they normally would. We are not sort of going to break down here. We can't. And what about you, Phil? It was obviously slightly different because we there was a <laughs> it felt like a never-ending build-up to yeah. Tony yeah, actually going. To like Bob Dylan, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> not as good, obviously. The difference we had was that the, the incoming Prime Minister was waiting 
round the corner with his team. As he to, had been for, to, as he had ten, been years. for ten years. But, uh, <laughs> you were lying in wait. Yeah, you, you know, they, they had their non-plan that they'd been working on for ten years, um, all ready to not go. Um, not, <laughs> not, not, not that they're still going over it. <laughs> um, it was, but it was different in that reason, that it was anticipated, it was planned, and we knew that day was coming. So we were all kind of ready for it in a way, but you're also not ready for it for exactly the reasons that you just heard, that it's still a deeply emotional day. Because I was involved in trying to draft some words because Blair was going to go to the House of Commons and, and do his final PMQs. And then we knew that at the end there'd be a sort of little speech he'd have to deliver. That would be his last words. And so I, I don't claim any credit for them in the end. He wrote them himself. But they were they're sort of really emotional. We, some of the team went over to the House to watch the final PMQs, but most of us stayed in Downing Street and watched it on the screen, which we didn't normally do. Uh, and we had a big lunch and you know those last words you know, I wish fr- friend and foe alike the best and that is that the end God, and then I've got shivers down my spine it was, it was extraordinary this amazing was, standing ovation yeah it was a, a, which a, a now there's ten a penny in the house of Commons yeah, standing know, ovation but at the time that was a big it was deal, extraordinary wasn't it? Yeah. and you know David Cameron to his credit just got, got the uh, we the were standing up in our office, um, giving him yeah. a good clap as well. Yeah. I mean, it it was a sort of, you know, <laughs> it, it was that was an extraordinary moment. And then he came back to Downing Street, where we had a, a reception, where he gave a very gracious and funny little speech to all the staff. Uh, and then li- we literally left the building. We all gathered up our stuff, and the, the political team all walked out through the link door, through the cabinet office. We weren't allowed through the front door because all the journalists will be waiting and that would look like we'd just been booted out which we had and we went off up to Soho where we all went for a drink and I ended up getting drunk with Suggs out of madness <laughs> <laughs> who happened to be in the pub we were in I went to the chip shop with him uh, and that was my day and just as I was whilst I was with Suggs talking about the early madness albums Gordon Brown's team came in through the front door and began the process of taking over come on off your sort of vantage point as a civil servant you're there for the you clap one out mm. and oh, then and you in. clap another one in i mean what happened on the morning that she left was that you know she came down the stairs you know with dennis and, and mark you know the five private secretaries uh, were waiting for her and we kind of shook hands tears were being shed and you know she said to andrew you know i think i need to go quickly you know i'll go and she just walked down the corridor towards the front door and of course it was lined with staff from number 10 who you know kind of applauded her and then she left you know there was that kind of very strange feeling you know we'd been doing preparation obviously uh, for john major but, but about an hour later in he came and it was like you know like seeing it all in reverse really and then you know there there we were with a new boss a very different style of working, you know, a very kind of uh, collegiate, sort of much younger man than Margaret Thatcher. And, you know, life just resumed, though it was never the same, I have to say, because Margaret Thatcher had her own style, like all prime ministers. I suppose, Gabby, you saw it from the other side, when you went in with David Cameron, clapped in by the Downing Street staff, but only an hour or so before they'd been emotionally clapping out Gordon (laughs) Brown. I know and actually in fairness though I I remember another thing that's come back to me when I first arrived into uh, number 10 there was a a letter for me from Stuart Wood one of Gordon Brown's advisors and I was very touched by this letter because it was a very you know it was a a very kind letter saying you know (laughs) not, not quite as punchy as that letter 
I don't want to embarrass him, but the letter said lots of good things and said, you know, good luck and all the rest of it. But it also did highlight where the good lose were. <laughs> we've been talking about that well, earlier. We will come on uh, to toilets because we've got... Um, I asked you uh, last week to send in some questions about number 10, which you have done, and I can report they're mostly about toilets and cats. <laughs> we'll answer as many as we can after this short break. Fiofilo says, I know it will sound like a dumb question, not at all, to seasoned political journalists, but I've always wondered who actually writes the Prime Minister's speeches. I've read loads about Obama's speechwriters. He seemed to employ a small army, but who does Mays? Does she do them herself? Is it Gavin Barwell? Well, I don't, I don't know that, how it actually works with Theresa May, but I can tell you with Tony Blair, it's always a mixture of people. I mean, until I went, took that job of chief speechwriter, it didn't really exist. The discipline was shared amongst many people, some in the department, some in the some civil servants, some political, but I was, insisted I, that's what I wanted to do. But that doesn't mean to say I wrote all the words, because I didn't, because the Prime Minister himself is deeply involved and so are lots of other people. So it's always a combined effort. But there's a big difference between the British and the Americans on this. It's a bit like comedy writing, where they employ huge numbers of people and great good committees, and we tend to be a singular person sat there in a room just beavering away. It's some combination of the writer and the main person who ends up doing the words. Cameron was the same, and we, he had two key speechwriters, I suppose, but really of a team of about four or five. Who were they? Amit Gill and Claire Fogues were his... And of course, Claire is a, now yes, a time columnist. Yes, absolutely. And they, <laughs> they were, all end up in the end, right? They, they were, <laughs> they're such beautiful writers. Exactly, exactly. exactly. <laughs> they were brilliant. And they're so wise. We'll ignore that, that bit of yeah, self-congratulations, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> but some people don't pay a lot of attention to politics. Is it the number of speeches which can be churned out by politicians in the States, not just in... Oh, and they also speeches that you won't even... The, we the, won't they be never register. No, they go because they go to make, announce a new strategy for yeah, or recept- something or, or reception in, in the, the evening where you've got things. to have a good speech yeah. to, to you know welcome the people exactly. that they're there's a whole range of speeches and I think one of the things which uh, people really just don't understand which is very important to, to grasp which is that most of these speeches are actually written by civil servants you know there are civil servants literally putting words into a prime minister's mouth we had a real split between political speeches where civil servants didn't go anywhere near them and you, you know Margaret Thatcher had a sort of crack team of people Ronnie Miller you know 
lots of different people who came in. There'd be a lot of hands going into a very big conference speech. But for those sorts of more minor speeches, it might just be me writing it. And I'd also provide it with speaking notes for those little sort of, you know, those receptions where she had to say a few words and all those sorts of things. Of which there are lots. Of which there are, there are lots are loads, of those yeah. things. And you've always got to remember that this is the one occasion on which this organization and these people will meet the Prime Minister. So you've got to give it your best yeah, it's got to be as to, good you you've got to right you need to get the right sentiment you know certainly margaret thatcher paid a lot of attention to those little speeches because she knew that every audience matters and of course politicians for politicians every audience does matter yeah and so i mean sometimes they will be doing speaking to three different audiences in a day easily i'm oh, always intrigued when yes. people say as they do all the time now that politicians routinely lie the amount of time we spent <laughs> in trying to establish that every single line in a speech was absolutely true and if it ever wasn't it's because we failed to establish that it was not that we thought we would not whether we were so deliberately true, lying though, i don't you know if it's been changing though because but you know certainly that kind of fact checking which you know civil servants would do would be absolutely essential let's have another question um, jacob cooper says how do they work in number 10 and indeed across whitehall having such terrible phone signal reception oh, in all the buildings started well i can deal with that one quickly because we weren't allowed our mobile phones in downing street was when i was right? there yeah I, we i mean i don't think they would have been invented when you were there, <laughs> 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 I, was. I had to carry around when i was you know, on duty at the weekends, you know, we used to have duty, you know, be on duty on a road to listen to into the prime minister's phone calls or to be available for her to contact. We used to have to carry some great big brick, you know, huge sort of, you know, it was called a mobile phone, but you know, frankly, well, I had to do, I had to do a lot of my briefings from a little cupboard which I'd found had good reception, and I was in there with the Christmas decorations, sort of talking to journalists. <laughs> we, we were told earnestly on our first day that um, mobile phones were a security risk, and the Russians could listen on our phones. Oh. But now we've invented a whole internet for them to do that <laughs> instead. <laughs> but, but we weren't. Didn't turn out to be true then, ha-ha. <laughs> we had to give our phones in, so we never used them. Sarah Haywood asks, which I thought was quite a good, good slightly left-field question, how many portraits and busts are there of women? How much of the art is by women artists? Well, I've got a story about this, so I don't know the answer to that. I managed to persuade the head of the government art collection, because there's a, there's a big collection that the government owns, and apparently they brought this into force because they were sick of having to put up new wallpaper in the 1800s and they said well we we'll have, you can put a nice piece of art up and not have to sort of go to the great expense of re-wallpapering. I'm not sure whether that was a false economy or not. But, um, <laughs> really an excuse for buying a load of painting. <laughs> I know, I It'll know. be cheaper than wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what kind of wallpaper they were putting up but anyway. Matt, um, why have you got this Rembrandt? <laughs> but I managed, to persu- I managed to persuade the head of the government art collection, who's a ferocious woman, that my office, in fact it was the same office that you said you worked at was in fact a meeting room and that foreign dignitaries would have to sort of coalesce in this office and we must make it nice. I managed to get some female portraits up in my office so I definitely had some in there. I'll tell you what, in my day though, I I don't think there were many um, but certainly what struck me the first time I walked up that staircase going up towards the state rooms and the flat you know, if you start from the basement, it's even more striking because that's where the portraits start. It's the portraits of the prime ministers. They're all men. Yeah. They were all men in my day. You know, obviously when Margaret Thatcher resigned, then she was put up at the very top. But, uh, you know, it, it, you just sort of think, gosh, you know, men have held the power. That's a visible sign of it. It does remind me that there's a fantastic, or there certainly was when we were there, picture taken by David Belly of the Queen laughing. And that was in the sort of reception rooms. And I love that picture. There is something, I mean, the, I've obviously not been to number 10 as much as any of you, but whenever I have, that going up the staircase is one of the most exciting, partly because it's so iconic. But also it's a, it's a an amazing reminder of how many 
you're just one of yeah. you know one day you're just gonna be on the wall with all the others it's a sort of permanent reminder and of course your portrait only goes up there once you've gone yeah, yeah. so you don't want it up there too quickly no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always felt that i mean do we We've been sort of like telling funny stories about it, but every day I always felt that, that this is a fantastically privileged place to yeah, work. Yeah. It's an extraordinary, surrounded by all that history, and, and you, you're always conscious of that. And only in, I suppose, the UK this could happen. You'd walk into Number 10, and to your left would be one of Wellington's campaign chests that he took to Waterloo, and it's used as a, you know, an odds and sods drawer. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then Churchill's chair, and then another great big watchman's chair, which um, the phrase in the hot seat came from you know all these wonderful historic artifacts or, or you know things that we just sort of well I didn't take for granted but I suppose one could and, and you absolutely mustn't after that sort of serious um, point let's talk about toilets so we had quite a few questions about toilets in number 10 Wallace Wilson asked how many toilets are there and where are they Phil toilets well, I got quite obsessed with finding new toilets in Downing Street. And with a, a friend of mine who was the Home Affairs advisor, we had plans to do a sort of coffee table, gatefold, pull-out book. Because in the middle of this book, I imagined there was this one amazing toilet on the way up to the flat uh, in number 10, which was this chrome, horrendous design thing. As if Liberace designed toilets, that would be what the toilet would be like. <laughs> that was a man's loo, wasn't it? I think it was. Yes, it wasn't. Yes. Women weren't no, supposed no. to be. How I know... I'm glad you've said that, because well, I used to go in there all the time. Um <laughs> I, I, used to, I think it's more just what Gandhi was doing. <laughs> exactly. But that is an extraordinary place. And we thought, well, this how did this happen? And we wanted to tell the story. I mean, bizarrely, this book has never yet been published. But if, if there are publishers listening to this podcast and they're interested, can I just say that was my idea? That was that, yeah, you've, you've, you've put an annex into my you've, book. You've basically <laughs> copyrighted it. Off the, the study where Margaret Thatcher went, there was, she had her own, there was a private loo there. I can't. I, yes, actually, there was. Yeah, yes, and I, that's right. I can't remember much details about the number 10 toilets. It's, you know, 28. 29 years. I've heard Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness having a quite important, sensitive conversation in the toilet. Yeah. They didn't know I was in there. I, to this day, I can't reveal what they have to say. Were you, high, were you just looking for the, the maker of the toilet for the footnotes of your, your book? What are you doing? I'm just doing a history on the toilet. That's right. It's research. <laughs> You've been in there hours, Phil. Um, uh, Elaine Clifford asks, can people working there just go to the kitchen and make a cup of tea or coffee whenever they fancy one? Yes, well, you, yes, mm. you can. Absolutely. Given you know the code of the Prime Minister's house, you can go into his kitchen and make one if yeah. you wanted. Well, Crack over the shampoos. I think tea was delivered to us, actually, well, by, by messengers. But um, I do remember... On the on the day that she was uh, uh, was it was the day she was thinking about resigning, uh, going down to the kitchen and making some sandwiches in desperation because I was sort of kicking my heels, thinking, "What the hell do I do?" Because we were all waiting for some kind of decision. When um, when David Cameron was there, he he would get a cup of tea, and whoever happened to be in the the meeting with him, but there were, there certainly wasn't. I'm afraid a sort of tea trolley going around, so you had to make your own a, tea. Well, there was, when I was there, there was a cafe in the basement. I don't yes. know if that disappeared. Martin so. Allison still. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's yes. the world's tiniest canteen from memory sort of tea yes. bar sandwiches yes, yes quite good right. though yeah quite good though we enjoyed it down there <laughs> <laughs> we had several questions about the door so phil clayton and it might be that you don't know the answer to them phil clayton said why is the zero on the front of the door not straight i'm not sure that anyone knows the real answer i to think that. Uh, slightly trying to look into the future for the other podcast that you haven't listened to yet i think we do slightly address it and basically nobody really knows yes. but there's a suspicion it was the architect who did the work rebuilding it in the 60s had such a terrible time it might just be another example of him yes, mucking about. What I do know about the door is there's several of them. 
So, of course, when it's... The, the, there's about two or three, at least two, but I think possibly three, and they're obviously enormous and bomb-proof and all the rest of it, but they take them off. Obviously, when they're polishing them or doing the, painting them, it can't be seen to be doing that sort of on site. So you have wet to wet paint site. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so they've got... they got doors, Yeah, that's right. Well, that's good. Actually, Brian Bromley asked, um, does everyone working there use the front black door, which I think we've, we've, we've established they don't? So when was the door last replaced, and do the hinges get oiled weekly? Well, I mean, it almost... Like they get taken almost, off and oiled think, elsewhere. Yes, I think there's a big sort of shed where they all go. It'd be interesting to go and see where, where's the other door when it's not being, when it's not being used. It's got the, old, the hallmarks of a three-part documentary. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe it could be a coffee table <laughs> book, a companion. <laughs> Doors by Matt <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and finally, um, loads of questions about the cats. And I think, uh, Gabby, you're going to claim this is the, my, it might be the only surviving David Cameron surviving legacy. legacy. Yeah, and, so let's cat. start. So Alex Boardman says, I was just wondering why on earth Larry the cat sleeps. And much like the infamous cat in an old people's home that sits on the lap of the next person to die, I wonder whether Larry does the same for those who are next to resign. If so, I hope Amber Rudd is staying well clear. Well, that question was clearly sent in before the events of the of the weekend. Where does Larry sleep? Talk what? us through Larry the cat. So Larry... Larry would sleep wherever it was really warm. He quite liked our office, and he'd quite often, you'd, you know, you'd find your chair just covered in cat's hair. Luckily, we weren't allergic to cats, so it was fine. But um, idea was Larry the cat. It was my idea. Was, I mean, like, genuinely, it was like my cats? idea. I do quite like cats, but to be I honest, like it was a slow, it was a slow news week. <laughs> And the play, and the ba- and basically the um. The, do you remember that report? There was a sort of a rat ran across. Oh yeah, the, yeah on da- on the ten o'clock news. Ten or o'clock news. Yeah. And I was appalled by this, and um, I said, "Well, we should get a cat." And it was sort of a joke. And then suddenly we were like, "Why not? Let's get a cat." What would you have done for the next slow news? <laughs> Darren's we trying horse. to get a dog. <laughs> I, don't know, but I don't think we had a cat in uh, Margaret Thatcher's day, but there was at Checkers a cat, uh, a homeless cat that she said just sort of walked in one day and sort of became her friend. She really liked the cat, and the cat really liked her, but the cat couldn't stand men, apparently. We all loved Larry, actually. It was, um, well, I know for a fact that that's not true, that there were some people in Number 10 who really did not <laughs> like Larry. And I, I believe the current occupa- occupant of Number 10 is not a fan of cats. Oh, is that right? Very much a dog yeah. person. Um, so it's, it, in fact, it's one of the few things really that Theresa and I agree with on. Um, fact, um, Andrada Dobre asked, Whitehall cats are famous, but why has Number 10 never been home to a dog? There was a, there was a story that came out last year that Theresa had talked about. I think, again, it might be a quiet news week. And they talked about getting her a dog. And she said she was concerned about who would walk it when she was away on foreign trips. But in truth, you do, but you do have to think through. You do have to think through because we had to have a quiz night to raise money to, you know, feed Larry. Because it, it was litter. a sort of, yeah. yeah. The walking point is actually important because you, one of the things you feel in Downing Street as a Prime Minister, you often said this, he feels trapped. It's quite hard with the security these days for him to go out. So you're not going out into St James's Park walking a dog. It would be absurd. So you, you can't possibly do that. So somebody else is actually looking after your dog, even if you've got one. And finally, Deborah King says, why don't they just get a cat flap and then you wouldn't have to keep opening and shutting the door? You can yeah, put that security, in your doors book, I think, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is definitely <laughs> one to continue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, on that um, silly note, it's been absolutely fascinating. I hope that we answered, well, it was basically toilets and toilets and cats. Uh, we've done toilets and cats. If you've got any other questions, do send them through redboxofthetimes.co.uk and we'll try to answer them in a future week. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device or sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But my huge thanks to Caroline Slowcock, Gabby Burton and Phil Collins. And for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye.
Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.